Welcome to a uh, dual function session. This is a POSNA webinar. It's also a POSNA podcast episode. And the topic for today is innovation in pediatric orthopedics. Uh, we could call it startup planning. We could call it bringing ideas to fruition, uh, entrepreneurship, lots of different names. And uh, our hope is you're going to hear a lot of different paths to that goal. My name is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans. Um, it's an honor to be here hosting this session with uh, a lot of people I really look up to on the panel. And my co-host is uh, Dr. Kevin Shea from Stanford, who really doesn't need an introduction. Um, so good afternoon or good morning in California. Kevin, how are you? I'm doing great. It's great to be here and exciting to get all these people together for a really, I think, interesting round of discussions and questions. So looking mm -hmm. forward to this. Definitely. I think uh, anyone watching is going to see some familiar faces on the screen. So uh, I won't waste too much time on introductions, uh, but we'll just go around real quickly. Uh, first up, Dr. Ira Zaltz. He's a pediatric orthopedist at Beaumont in Royal Oak, Michigan, and uh, he specializes in hip preservation. He's a proliferative researcher, proliferative thinker in the field, and uh, in addition to influencing the field in that way, he's also developed some specialized instruments, um, which help me out every time I do a PAO. So Ira, thank you for joining us. Good to see you. It's a pleasure. Good to see you all. Next up on my list, not on your screen right now, but we're going to splice him in after because uh, I think he might be flying across the Atlantic right now, is Dr. Peter Newton from Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego. He's a pediatric spine surgeon, another proliferative researcher and leader in the field. He's developed numerous uh, spine implants, maybe most uh, famously, most sort of controversially, the uh, anterior vertebral body tethering concept. So uh, you don't see him now, but he'll be added in in a little bit. Next up, Dr. James Wall. Now we're uh, leaving orthopedics a little. He's a pediatric general surgeon to expand our uh, our purview a little bit. He is at Stanford and he's very involved in developing new products and uh, startup companies. He is immersed in innovation even beyond his own experience because he is the director of Stanford's Biodesign Fellowship and the PI at the UCSF Stanford Device Consortium. Hopefully I got those uh, titles remotely correct. Thank you for joining us. How are you? Doing great. Thank you all for having me. It's going to be uh, fun to talk about uh, both orthopedics and, and innovation overall in pediatrics and the challenges and opportunities we see. Definitely. Kevin and I have been looking forward to it uh, for, for a long time. Next up, Rene Casey, whose uh, name I hope I didn't butcher too badly. He uh, was a practicing maxillofacial surgeon in Montreal, has started several healthcare companies, now has taken a little bit of a different path with his career. Hopefully I'm getting this all right, but I believe you've transitioned from clinical now to full-time being a CEO. And um, you're currently, if I've got this correct, spending your time at Stanford as a visiting uh, visiting scholar. And I know you told me uh, once you get to, to that area, it's a little bit hard to leave. Did I get all that correct? And uh, are you at Stanford for the foreseeable future? Yeah. The moment we we stepped off the plane there from Montreal, from cold Montreal, my wife said, we are not leaving this place. Uh, and I actually just joined as an adjunct professor at the School of Medicine also. I'll be giving a couple classes here and there. But uh, yeah, glad to be here. Thank you for the, uh, for the invite. Exciting. Um, very good to have you. If anyone out there is looking for a, a way to feel bad about yourself, you can go look at Renee's CV and all his accomplishments. So really an honor to have you on. Um, and last, certainly not least, Manaj Ramachandran. 
a pediatric orthopedic surgeon now in uh, London. So we're going across the pond with experience starting multiple companies, including some very large and impressive ventures, which we're going to hear about. Uh, Manaj, thank you for making this time difference work and good to see you. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute honor. And I actually, I saw uh, Peter Newton in Dublin two days ago. Um, so he's flying across the Atlantic. Yeah, so he's got a good excuse. All right. Well, I know we got a lot of very busy people on the line. I want to be respectful of people's time. So let's jump right in. So Ira, the question that we're going to ask everyone is if you wouldn't mind, just give us a little bit of sort of story time with your experience, bringing a, an idea to market to fruition. What path did you take and how did it sort of evolve? So I, um, you know, as you have alluded to, I'm interested in hip surgery and I have been practicing hip surgery since I started practice 27 years ago. And over the years, the practice has changed, so that's pretty much all I focus on now. And when you do things repetitively, you try to think about it and improve yourself, I think that inevitably we all think of things that might make our jobs a little bit easier. And that was sort of uh, how I conceived some of the instruments that I thought would be helpful in doing a PAO. And most of the instruments that I, I thought about were to bail me out of difficult situations. So um, I felt that uh, by redesigning some of the tools that we have all been trained to use, uh, it might make the procedure safer, faster, less morbid. And uh, that's sort of the impetus behind how, how this all started. When you started having these ideas, uh, what was sort of the, the timeline that you went through the process? Did you have an idea and patent it or go partner with a company or, you know, can you take us through the sort of step-by-step? -step? Yeah. I think that's a great question. I had, I had, you know, always been taking notes about my procedures and where I thought I could change things and make them better. And it was just sort of like 10 years of accumulated notes that I was thinking about. And um, I had designed a few instruments and as many things in life, uh, they occur sort of serendipitously or fortuitously. I was in Mexico City and I was flying home um, from a conference and the head of orthopediatrics was on my flight and we were at the airport together and I was talking to him about some of these ideas. And I had previously talked to the people at, at Synthes, but there really wasn't much of a interest. And um, he said, wow, I thought that would be a great idea. So uh, I think smaller companies move a lot faster and, you know, within a couple of days, he sent me a non-disclosure agreement to sign and um, I would say within a month, we had some plastic prototype instruments and we tweaked the plastics and then made them into prototypes and tested them at the University of Michigan on cadavers and the whole process probably took about six months from concept to actually having a workable instrument. And so then did you develop a, a patent? Were those, first of all, were those patentable? And second, did you develop a patent with orthopediatrics? So my, I don't think that they perceived the popularity of these instruments and nor did I. And frankly, selfishly, I just wanted them for myself. I didn't know if other people would really like them or not. And um, they're not patentable instruments. Like, you know, you can't really patent an osteotome and you can't really pat patent modifications of existing retractors. So uh, they're not patentable. And um, what I have in my mind, what I use is the offset blue handle osteotome and then that right angle double prong sort of modified home and retractor for the ramus osteotomy. Those two were the outcome of this process. Is that correct? Yes. And we have others like that are in the works still, but they've taken a little bit more time to develop. 
So let's say, having been through this process before, if and maybe this is exactly what you're doing, but if you had a brand new idea for an instrument tomorrow that you thought would make these uh, procedures better and would be you know, popular and there'd be a market for it, what pro- would you go through the same process right now, or would you know would you go straight to the company? Would you develop a provisional patent, or what? How would you go about it now, knowing what you know? You know, I'm not a patent lawyer, but I, I have had a different device that uh, I worked on with some other pediatric orthopedic surgeons that relates to the spine that we did patent, and um, it's a major pro- process in the United States to be able to patent something, and I think it's important to understand like what is patentable, what's not patentable. And osteotomes are not really patentable. Unless they have some mechanism or device in it that's novel, they're really not patentable. Doesn't mean they're not useful because they're not patentable. But what I would do is, um, if I did not have an existing relationship with a company, I think knowing what I know now, I would try to go with a smaller company than a bigger company because I think you're more likely to get people who, you're more likely to get direct interaction with like engineers and decision makers at smaller companies than you would be necessarily at a larger company. And when I was working with orthopediatrics, it was much smaller than it is today. And it was amazingly fast. And I had had previous um, experience working with Johnson & Johnson on a spine implant, and it was uh, a snail snail pace. So I really enjoyed the opportunity to work with a small company. I think that that's other people's experiences as well, who, with whom I've spoken, that they, they find it easier to work with smaller companies. Well, thank you so much for joining us and being so generous with your time. We are now uh, spliced in with Dr. Newton. It's uh, just Kevin and I right now. And uh, Dr. Newton, first of all, thank you so much for joining us. Always nice to see you. You too. It's great to join you guys. We'll just get right into it. So the first question that uh, the audience at this point will have already heard from uh, at least one or two other panelists is if you would just give us sort of the the rundown, sort of an overview of your experience bringing innovative ideas, whether that's implants or techniques, to fruition and sort of what what avenues you've gone through with that. I guess if I look back to the beginning of my career, the most innovative at the time was uh, the thoracoscopic approach to the anterior part of the spine. And that didn't uh, really exist when I was going through residency and in, in fellowship, just kind of coming to being. And so I, I got, I guess, lucky and then also just had an opportunity to work with some folks who could in, at least introduce me to those ideas. And uh, and I ran with that for, for a number of years, both in the... Uh, animal lab, and then uh, eventually bringing it to clinical practice. And I guess I would say that that, for me, has been an important theme for many of these things, is to try to start uh, with an animal model if it's a new technique like that, and uh, work out the kinks and get good at it before you expose a child to that uh, new approach. And uh, I I guess that led me to uh, anterior thoracoscopic instrumentation after mastering that release. Ultimately, I guess I would say that that gave me an avenue to to work towards uh, spinal growth modulation and tethering uh, and having that anterior experience and and skill to work thoracoscopically, I think, makes that uh, kind of a nice uh, segue. So I, I, don't know, I guess my first animal work around tethering was almost tw- was more than 20 years ago now, but 10 years later into patients and probably more like eight or nine years after that before there was uh, some sort of FDA clearance through the HDE process. So I still have some intellectual property around the tethering implants that are kind of going through various phases of 
working and development. And I mean, there's some story there, but I think, I guess the long and the short of it is I'm committed to this idea. If you're going to do it, you've got to sort of really go build the science uh, around uh, the philosophy and then get the techniques worked out so that you can as safely as possible, bring it to uh, the clinical realm. Yeah, I think that's a, a perfect segue and summary because uh, Iris started with the clinical expertise and then tweaked some of the instrumentation. You really started more from the lab and the scientific background, doing the animal studies and bringing something to, to fruition. Um, so that's kind of a unique and very sort of research-heavy path. Yeah. At what point during that process did you start partnering with industry or just developing the IP on your own? When and how did that happen? So I do have some Tether IP that I developed with uh, Depew at the time. Uh, so I haven't, I have not really taken a path of doing any IP development completely independent. I guess that's not completely true. I've got one thing in the works now that is not really uh, very much tied to industry yet, but I still feel like it's easiest for me to pitch those ideas and, and link them to uh, a big company like that where the expertise lives. So that, that's been, that's worked out well for me. So that an implant was designed, IP was uh, created around that. It was utilized, that same implant was utilized in animal studies. And uh, and actually a submission to the FDA was made. The company, I think eventually, uh, this was, hmm, boy, it's more than 10 years ago. Uh, at the time, this just wasn't, didn't have enough traction and they decided it wasn't worth uh, making any further investment. But they since uh, licensed that technology to another company with the idea that they would be the ones to to bring it to market and, and take it through the clinical trial process. And so that's ongoing now. And if that ever comes back, uh, Depew has the right to to pick that back up again if they wish. So I'm, I'm still peripherally involved in all that, but uh, not really uh, actively involved in, in the development at this stage of the game, interestingly enough. And again, I guess uh, back to your you know thoughts about conflict of interest in, in some ways that, insulates me a little bit from from some of those challenges but you know there's good and bad with that i mean at, at some point early in the process if you have a surgeon who knows the technique developed the technique has the most expertise to do the initial surgeries but the conflict of interest mitigation plan is to not allow that then uh in some ways you're you, you take that expertise out of the early equation helps with the conflict but uh, may not help advance the technology so i think there are some challenges but once you get things beyond that into a point where there's lots of people who could do this, then, you know, having those conflicted individuals out of the picture the best you can, I think, is is valuable. But you have to understand, I think there are pros and cons to, to that approach. Sounds like that's not totally a hypothetical uh, situation. Can you tell us about how that happened in your experience? Sure. Actually, the company took this implant to... Singapore and he Kit Wong did the initial cases with that implant actually has published that in JBGS subsequently and so uh, that was one way you know to, to, to find another trusted talented surgeon like he Kit who could you know perform the surgery certainly as well as I could uh, because of his vast thoroscopic skill uh, and I got to visit him a couple times and, and watch but that was a I thought that was a really nice uh, way for that to all go in the end, again, uh, it's got to make financial sense for the company to invest in the clinical trial to actually get this approved. And at that time, uh, there really wasn't appetite within the FDA to use the HD pathway or 
the de, de novo pathway didn't exist. So it was really going to be a, an IDE pathway, which is really a, a big expensive proposition for most of those companies, as you know. And so that puts the brakes on a lot of innovation, uh, unfortunately, in trying to sort through the best pathways to bring products like that to market are difficult. I think fortunately for all of us, at least who believe that tethering has uh, has some future, the Denesis product was able to be utilized off-label in a way that, that generated enough real-world clinical data. And the FDA had evolved uh, during that time to accept real-world data as kind of one of the, the mainstays of kind of proving technology could be safe. Uh, I think a lot of that has just uh, been an evolution in, in how things have moved through uh, the way the FDA sees things, and I think in a more with a more practical eye on things, to be honest with you. And so that's an adult anterior fusion system that you had used initially for anterior vertebral body tethering, putting in a tether instead of a rod, correct? Uh, it's actually a posterior dynamic stabilization system that was meant for non-fusion, and it was used in Europe fairly extensively. I don't think it had a very good track record. It was really to treat uh, low back pain and stenosis. So that didn't pan out all that well, but but the screws and the cord existed for posterior use and we moved them to the front of the spine in that off-label fashion. So they were approved in the U.S. for this non-fusion solution. <laughs> Actually, in the U.S., they were brought to market as a fusion device, uh, which was completely counter to what they were used for in Europe. So that's a different story. Uh, but uh, e either way, we had approved implants uh, for use in the body. Uh, and as you know, the physician-directed or off-label pathway allows physicians uh, to utilize uh, approved devices in ways that they weren't actually initially approved for at the direction of the physician uh, in this so-called off-label uh, way. And and of course, for much of us in pediatrics and pediatric orthopedics, there's you know lots of this, and it's gotten better as we've gotten more pediatric-specific implants and approval. But certainly early in my career, much of the spine world, the approvals were only for for adults, and and so almost all of what we were doing was off-label. In fact, uh, it's gotten better as the years have gone by, and there's more breadth to the approval for many things. But this was clearly quite off-label. <laughs> but again, that's not problematic necessarily, but there are some hindrances to that in the sense that research is much more difficult if you're trying to research off-label usage. You're not, you know, uh, supposed to be doing off-prospective off-label research. That requires an IDE. Uh, whether you want to market it or anything like that, you're not a company, you're just a surgeon wanting to do research. That's another area why I guess I would like to see a little bit more flexibility built in the system. I understand the the rationale from the FDA. I mean, it can really become the wild, wild west if you just let people do whatever they want. But I do think that there are ways to do, we would have been better early if we'd been able to do prospective research on this from day one. Uh, and as a result, we didn't. And uh, we went back retrospectively and looked at data after time. But the IRB user wisely the idea you can't do a, a retrospective review, a new retrospective review every six months and, and pretend mm -hmm. like that's not prospective. So uh, eventually, you know, we kind of got past all that now that uh, Zimmer went and used much of that data that was uh, done retrospectively to to get their HDE approval. And that's been a huge improvement for us with regards to now that we can do prospective research on that device because it's got approval. But a lot of, I think a lot of implants do go through that sort of uh, 
phase. And insurgents are innovative people. They take stuff and do things with it that they weren't necessarily approved for. But I mean, again, in our, in our world, especially in pediatrics, we're, we're yeah. solving lots of problems with innovative solutions. Uh, I think that's just part of our job. We got to do that. We all do, you know, certain little things off label, but you were basically doing something very innovative, sort of systematically off label. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you need to do to sort of take that path in terms of legal risk or anything at your institution? Or does it all just come down to the standard consent form and the standard surgical risk? You know, it, it is a little bit dependent on the nature and flavor of things at your institution. Uh, it's probably, you know, wise to at least figure out, you know, where where does your institution stand on this? And for sure, there's a, a, a very, uh, at least for me, a very involved uh, consent. So I think that's important. And many, I think many times you ought to at least get, yeah, you ought to get the idea from your research scientific officer or, you know, chief medical officer, whoever is running research at your organization to figure out, you know, what do you need to have done? And uh, does an I, does the IRB need to know or not? And, and ours actually shook down that we didn't really have an IRB involved. And the FDA uh, in this whole tethering thing at one point did crack down on folks who were marketing this on their institutional or mm. practice websites. And yeah. that is one cl- thing that is very clear. I mean, you are not, you or the company are not allowed to market outside the labeling. And that's part of, you know, what the FDA regulates as well. So uh, they were, you know, intent to find out and be sure that people weren't, you know, marketing this. And one of their strategies was to let all the hospital administrators uh, where all these surgeries were being done know that, you know, their doctors were doing stuff that was off-label. And again, I mean, it's fine to do things off-label. It's not okay to put on your website advertising that you're doing this uh, newfangled procedure and it's off-label. So there's certainly rules to follow. And, uh, and I think they're there for a reason. And, and most of them make pretty good sense. Again, I'd, I'd like to figure out a way that we could, you know, do a little bit more research without having to really get through the entire uh, FDA IDE process. Uh, it's really onerous and expensive and difficult. Uh, I do think that's a, a hindrance that is probably a barrier bigger than required, personally. That's what I think. Yeah. Peter, one of the challenges in pediatric orthopedics is, uh, you know, a lot of things that we deal with are sort of orphan, you know, remarkably rare diseases. I think a definition of rare disease is less than 200,000 people a year in the United States are affected with it or something along those lines. But, you know, thoughts about, you know, some of the challenges we face in dealing with these relatively rare diseases and in particular if, if a company has to get involved at some stage, you need a partner um, and the company looks at the number of cases a year and the amount of money they have to put into it. And what will the market allow them to charge for it to recoup that investment? Because ultimately, these companies are responsible to their shareholders. Um, sure. they're, they're, um, you know, they do have a philanthropic mission to some degree, but for most businesses, that may be a relatively small part of their mission. It's they have a bigger mission and they've got to be accountable to their investors and their board. Um, how to you know, how do you engage large companies who look at orphan diseases is the ROI on this, whether that's a long run for that ROI, or we just have to charge an exorbitant amount per case to get that back. Thoughts about that and work with industry and certainly risk for industry. And, you know, unfortunately our, our pediatric patients with rare conditions sort of get squeezed in the, in the middle of that. Yeah. I don't think there's any doubt about what you said, Kevin. Uh, I think the FDA has tried to ease that burden by, Creating the HD pathway and yeah. and allowing the the companies to make some money on the deal uh, before they 
didn't, and they've increased the number of cases that they allow them to to sell the product to now. So I, I think the uh, FDA has made some adjustments uh, to ease the burden, and to the extent that that there are pathways which don't require a fifteen to thirty million dollar clinical trial. And so POSNA and, and SRS and with a lot of leadership from Bob Campbell uh, early on, I think have developed relationships with the FDA and really affected change over the last uh, at least decade and probably even a little bit longer. Uh, I think that's the pathway. You know, the, the companies, you're exactly right. They're not going to invest the $30 million uh, and not be able to make that money back you know, easily. So we've got to help alter the regulatory environment. Uh, but at the same time, obviously, we've got to be able to create safe methods to introduce yeah. these technologies. If you make it too easy, you got all sorts of crazy stuff going into people and probable benefit doesn't even exist. So I think we're reaching that balance. We've at least moved the needle. Yeah, I think there's a little bit more room uh, to move on some of this. But uh, there are obviously companies now that are focusing on the pediatric space. I think that helps us as well. We've got you know a number of companies now that are you know, kind of concentrating on on pediatric specific uh, implants. I think that that helps us also. Peter, another question for you. Is there a role or a way to encourage some of our insurance payers that not necessarily at the earliest stage of some of the trials, but let the insurance companies who obviously pay the hospital bill, sometimes they're government payers or it's Medicaid or Medicare or then the private uh, commercial insurance. Is there a way to engage them in this process that, at some stage, we'd like them to at least reimburse the institutions for procedures that they consider to be maybe mid to later stage experimental confirmation. You know, early on, they want the industry to bear the bulk, if not 100% of the cost. But is there a way to engage the insurance companies saying that we are trying to improve care by doing these things? Would you be willing to support the industry knowing that that means you've got to share some of these costs with all the people who are paying for your insurance product? But is there a way to help industry take on less of a burden, less of a risk? and maybe partner somewhat at a certain stage in the research process. You've hit a couple benchmarks, and now it's time to say, we think it's appropriate that insurance pay the hospitals for this work. Wow, that's a great idea, Kevin. I That seems like uh, a big rock to push up a big hill, I got to tell you. I, that one, I'm not super optimistic that uh, the insurance companies want to be involved in, in this innovation. I Maybe I'm a little too cynical, but uh, that one seems like a stretch to me. Uh, it's tough enough right now for us to get even, you know, new codes brought right. through the process in a timely fashion that allow RVU valuations uh, so that, you know, many of the docs that are doing these procedures can even get paid in their, you know, current reimbursement models. And so I, I really, that was a struggle. And uh, I do think there's room to clean that up. Uh, don't get me wrong. Uh, but that process of getting, codes for these and getting valuations yeah. for these things is probably where they need to go. I think that if we could, you know, make that faster, more efficient and have that process be going simultaneously. But, you know, that's, a, it's the same. I mean, they don't want to give money to something that doesn't have proven efficacy and, and the mechanisms by which they determine efficacy is, you know, publications with two year follow-up. So we're automatically two years behind the eight ball. And then the process is another you know, a year or two after that before there's actually money flowing from insurance for, for a new code. One of the ways to make it a win-win, and this may be pie in the sky, but the recovery cost for the industry is very high. 
And if the insurance companies were willing to be a partner, then maybe there was an exchange such that once the procedure is approved, the recovery costs are lower because the insurance companies partnered with the industry. And it was sort of a win-win that they're not going to pay $300,000 for a procedure. They might be able to pay $150,000 procedure because they were a partner <clears throat> in the development. I'm just, uh, I'm just trying to kind of think out loud, but I've often thought that there's got to be some way, because I, I do believe, I know we're all cynical to some degree, and there's reasons for that cynicism, but I do think that a lot of the insurance companies are genuinely interested. I mean that, genuinely interested in improving the outcome of patients. And I think the pediatric world, quite frankly, I think it's easier to make a compelling argument, but also an argument, a moral argument, uh, improving the lives of children argument with insurance companies and say, would you join us and be a partner on things that are really important for children. Again, you know, it's a lifetime. Everyone can, I want to do something that's good for children. And maybe they would think differently as opposed to, well, we're going to help you with a new total hip replacement design. Well, not too interested. But if you're going to dramatically alter the, the trajectory of a child's life by solving a spinal deformity problem early on, maybe they say, I'm willing to be a partner in that and maybe sharing some of the development costs. You know, they wouldn't do that from the start. But if you hit certain benchmarks, say you have five stages and once you've got to stage three and you've met certain criteria that insurance and industry would agree upon, of course, with FDA some type of oversight, maybe insurance companies would say, we're willing to be a partner now because we believe in doing something for children and doing something for rare diseases. But maybe that's too far-fetched. But I actually think sometimes the insurance company is much more willing to take on these things because I've seen insurance, like the Academy years ago, the Academy was trying to get partners to fund the development of clinical practice guidelines and evidence-based clinical practice guideline development and performance measures. And Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield in, in Philadelphia gave several grants to the American Academy of Surgeons to subsidize some of these costs to develop clinical practice guidelines, which were you know sixty dollars to $120,000 per guideline of actual yeah. cost to do it. And they said, we think this is gonna improve care. And so I, I think that, uh, not think we can't appeal to the insurance companies and be willing to take their feedback, but Maybe there's some middle stage in which they can agree to support these things. And I think pediatric cases may have more likelihood of engaging their, their philanthropic side, because they all have a little bit of a philanthropic side. Ultimately, they got to you know, meet the expectations of shareholders. But thoughts about, is that still what's just too pie in the sky, too unrealistic? <laughs> um, well, I think on the on the clinical practice guideline, it's I think it's very easy for them to understand how they translate reducing variability of practice and saving money and improving care. Both that's an easy one for them to get on board with um, a new technology that may or may not turn out to be uh, better quality because we don't know yet, and it may be more expensive, not less expensive. We don't know yet. Um, I think those are harder for them to really be willing to jump on early, but uh, I like the idea. And, and I think that clinical practice guideline development is a good example of how we need to figure out ways to, to create a win-win. And that one certainly is, seems like an obvious one. So I, uh, that's a good example of, of where it could easily work. Getting them to you know, engage, if we're still on the tethering topic, to try to understand who, who should be tethered and who shouldn't and, and really refine who are the ultimate indications going to be? It's a harder one when those questions are so still so vague and the and at least the answers are still unknown. How about that? Peter, another question for you about real-world evidence. And, you know, one of the challenges with retrospective studies, and it's less of a problem now, but historically retrospective studies, you didn't collect the data points you needed and you introduced a lot of bias and you make assumptions. And the theory about prospective studies is you define your outcome measures, you measure them consistently, 
you have set timelines. And so the gaps in knowledge are not because you're missing information. Yeah. In the era in which our electronic medical records are getting really good, we're increasingly using patient report outcome measures um, and even sometimes you know, general health outcome measures, but also disease-specific outcome measures, the quality of retrospective data. Are we going to get to the point where if we have really good EMRs and really good proms on general health and really good proms on disease-specific measures that we measure, whether we collect con consistently on our patients, in some ways, doesn't that turn retrospective studies into they're still retrospective studies, but the bias that's introduced in the studies goes down a lot because we collected better data, even though it was done retrospectively without a prospective plan. Um, yeah, for sure. Uh, and, I, and I think yeah, I think that's why many of the registries that exist, they are collecting standardized data uh, yeah. over time and then going back many times asking retrospective questions. They, they still have a some sort of driving prospective question, but, but even still, those patients that are actively being uh, enrolled in a process where very standardized data collection is being done. And I think that the FDA is starting to, to realize that. I, I, I think they agree and I agree and you agree that, that the data quality has the potential yeah. to be quite good. It's not gonna you know, help the bias with who got which procedure and why they, this person yeah. got that one, this one got the other one. And so it's not gonna be able to necessarily assume that you know, all of the patient cohort that got procedure A and procedure B were equal, but at least you can uh, know that, you know, that the data that you're getting uh, is is pretty good and the follow-up is more likely to be better. And and obviously the, the technology to extract data from the EMR is continually improving. Yeah. Uh, and that, I, I think I really hold a lot of hope around that changing how all of this is done. I, you know, I've been involved in the harm study group for uh, 20 years now, and we went from you know collecting everything on paper and then getting everything in the computer, but but we still got a human doing an awful lot of this work, and yeah. uh, and we ought to be able to you know get direct extraction and or have our patients contribute some of their data directly. Uh, so I, I really do think that there will be changes in uh, over time that are enhanced by the electronic medical record and our just general access to patients through smartphones and wearables and all the rest that will give us uh, a lot more information about how the patient is doing. I, and, and, and fortunately, the, I think the FDA is, is on board with that. I, I mean, that's this whole idea that real-world data is important and valid and usable, you know, was never the case, and now it is. So that's really, it's really good news, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, with that, we'll get back to the rest of the panel. Great. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks, Peter. Great seeing you. You too. So, James, if it's okay with you, you're up next with that same question. Will you sort of take us through your, your story with innovation and uh, bringing a product to market? Absolutely. I was going to show just a couple of slides and maybe give a, a high-level landscape that we can then bring back to orthopedics. So first big point here is that pediatrics in general across the board is underserved by the medical device industry. And showing some data here where you see approvals for pediatric devices by the US FDA. And if you're looking at this chart, what you see is a nice steady rise um, or you know, increase in robustness of the medical device industry over a 10 year period where approvals went from about 30 to 70 on, annual, on an annual basis. These are 510Ks and PMAs. But when you look specifically and dig into devices that were specific 
built, designed, and tested for children, including orthopedics. That number is between zero and five a year and it's remained flat. So while the overall industry has robust growth, the devices being approved for children remains low. So there's clearly a need for people to be doing this work and for physicians to be advocates for our patients across the spectrum of pediatric healthcare. This is pitch book data that talks about early stage. So as opposed to Ira working with a big company, another path to market is to try and go through a startup mechanism, which we'll dig into in more detail. But long story short, that's challenging in pediatrics. These are the number of seed investments in medical devices. So this is non-pharma devices, diagnostics. And when you look at it, really, you know, kids are 25% of the population, 100% of the future, and they're getting on average about 5% of investment. And when you really dig in on these numbers, this is about $78 million over the last, over a three-year period between 2019 and 21. And those investments of that 78 million, about half of it were devices that really had dual use. They were both adult and then kind of had a pediatric add-on. So really just um, a, a de minimal amount of investment in, in this. So what we're trying to do about it here at Stanford, you know, we're a combination of frontline clinicians and this program Biodesign, which you mentioned, is a place where we really focus on innovation education, teaching clinicians and engineers to work together on unmet clinical needs uh, across the spectrum of healthcare, teaching them a repeatable process to go from identifying those needs, matching and inventing technologies, and then really understanding the implementation plan, how to go through the FDA, how to garner payment, how to get a code, things that we're just not taught in, in medical school. So I'll go into the story of what we've done. You know, PEDS has a lot of specific reasons why those investments are low and why the FDA approvals are low. There's issues around small markets, there's technical challenges of small and growing children, and there's a perception of regulatory risk. So I'm gonna show really a de novo innovation that started with a clinical observation outside of our area to show that you don't necessarily just have to innovate within your area, but you can certainly use that as strategic focus. So this was an example of one of our teams that went out looking at NICU opportunities and they really saw a shocking inequity in central line management. You look on the right, you see standardized, protocolized, simple devices that can secure and protect adult central lines. It's brought the number of CLABSIs down to uh, less than 1% on the adult side. You look currently in our NICUs and the best we can do to secure an umbilical central line in a premature immunocompromised baby is a chunk of non-sterile tape. It's just absolutely shocking when you really look at them side by side. So our team decided to start DeNovo within Stanford. Long story short is they came up with a concept that started out, uh, you can see on, in the image that we're showing, a whole bunch of prototypes that really started with just the top of a baby bottle. So you can imagine an umbilical catheter that's coming at a 90 degree angle outside the umbilicus. The umbilicus is a unique part of the body that needs to desiccate and fall off over the first couple of weeks of life. And so they really wanted to come up with a way to secure the line at the 90 degrees and protect that umbilical stalk from infection. So it started with the top of a, the nipple of a baby bottle, and then they quickly realized through testing that they needed to ventilate the area to let it dry out. They needed better securement and ultimately came um, to a very simple device that could be silicone molded. What you see on the left here is a whole bunch of interviews and information from nurses, really getting a ton of user-centered input from the front line. Further here, we see them doing mechanical testing within Stanford, biologic testing. This makes the point that we did file the IP with Stanford, but we also 
absolutely maximize the use of Stanford's resources to develop this early without spending private money. So what we would call non-dilutive capital grant funding um, and you know people's time and, and volunteer work to get this product all the way to manufacturability. We put it through you know, a real development plan for a medical device, which you see here going from all the way from those user studies through considering clinical trial development and our regulatory filing. We did all that within Stanford um, and ultimately came up with a solution that we were able to have ready for manufacturing <laughs> as it was leaving Stanford and, and licensing the IP out. We had customers ready and we had a venture group that was willing to make a small bet on us. We commercially launched it about three years ago, started generating revenue, uh, reasonable margins, which we can talk about. It's important to get the unit economics right. It's now been on over 2,000 babies. We've seen clinical studies showing 73% reduction in line migrations of umbilical catheters. We're hoping to see decrease in infection rates. And it was just recently acquired by a larger company that was a victory for all, a financial return for the investors, but more importantly, put it in the hands of a group that has a sales force that can scale it nationally. So that's kind of the story of that one. And I'll hand it back over um, to you. Yeah, well, first of all, congratulations on the acquisition. That's great. Uh, I think that's a, a, a nice example because we heard before about partnering with industry. And uh, this is obviously an example of going a different way and starting your own company. Before, before we move on, uh, one quick question. I suspect a lot of people listening work for universities have agreements with universities and may not even know the details of what was in their contract when it was signed. So when you say you filed the IP with Stanford, what, what does that ultimately translate into? Yeah, typically most universities have an IP assignment and, and some freestanding children's hospitals for that matter and some uh, private hospitals for that matter. So it, it's institution dependent. Um, but if you have signed one of those forms that you assign your IP to your employer, then anytime, essentially use any resources of the employer, let's just, we'll use Stanford as the employer, but it doesn't, you know, it could be anyone. So if, if I'm using Stanford resources to develop something, I assign them the IP. So it's a double-edged sword. They own it. They generally speaking, most places won't ever sell it, but they will license it back when the time's right. The advantage as an innovator, uh, as Ira alluded to, it can be very time consuming and expensive to develop your own IP. So the advantage of assigning it to a Stanford is that they, typically, or any employer, will have some mechanism to evaluate the IP, see if there's a market opportunity, and then <laughs> upfront make the payment in order to develop a provisional patent and or a full utility patent. And that costs on the order of tens of thousands of dollars. So to do it yourself is, is a significant investment. In terms of what happens when you're ready to license it out, they'll typically shop it around and see if there's other companies interested versus the innovators. Different institutions have different preference. At Stanford, they tend to prefer the innovators if they have a reasonable plan to go with a startup as opposed to licensing to a company that they may or may not know as well. So if you are an innovator licensing it out, you have to go through a term sheet which has you know, multiple sort of contractual things, but essentially you have to repay them for the amount they've invested so far in the IP. And then you have to commit to some future payments, typically a small percentage on net royalties, as well as potentially some milestone payments. There's also some clawbacks that if you don't make progress, they can have the IP back. And then finally, in terms of the financial workings of that, as an inventor, at Stanford, the deal is a third, a third, and a third, meaning any revenues that come back from IP in the future, a third goes to the university, a third to the department in which it was invented, and a third to the inventor split, however they decide to split it. 
Um, the university also has some small rights through the IP to make an investment, um, but really the starting the company and the equity in the company is up to the founders. So that's kind of the, the overall workings of that, but happy to dig, dig into any part of that. No, that's great. Uh, and hopefully all those details weren't too intimidating to any listeners with ideas. The, the idea here is to, to be motivating, but there are a lot of details, a lot of stuff to learn along the way. The key thing to learn from to ask your institution, if you're really thinking about licensing it out to somebody else, is really understanding that percent breakdown, because that's quite variable, whether you get half and the institution gets half of the royalties versus, you know, a third, a third, and a third, as I described. It's, that's very institutional dependent. So really important to understand that if, as you go into the process. Minaj, were you going to jump in there? Yeah, if it's okay, James, I just uh, I want to add a point to that because I think Stanford is extremely well placed to do this kind of thing, and it's it's incredible setup in terms of you know being able to come up with ideas and spin it out from that. Those sorts of opportunities may not be available at other institutions, particularly around the world. Um, and I'll speak a bit later about two of the startups I've been involved in, which have come out of Stanford pretty much. But I'll just say there is another way, which is a venture building process. There are, uh, there are venture capital firms that work with tech transfer officers in various academic institutions and say, they will come in, we'll sign a, a deal with you. And what we'll do is we'll take the idea and, and commercialize it for you. We'll build an executive team, build a C-suite. Uh, all the executives will go out and build a team out for you and then come to an arrangement. We see that a lot in, in Europe and in the UK. Um, it's starting, um, you know, happens in the US too. So I'm sure you've had some experience with that. I just wanted to raise that point as another mechanism. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, it's a great point. And, and I think at every step of the process, if you have an idea and a patent, you should think about multiple options, right? You could license to a big company. You could go this sort of entrepreneur in residence route where a venture firm backs you. You could have them build the team or you could do it yourself. But what I, what I generally advise people is that you always have to have the plan to do it yourself because none of those other things are guaranteed. So if it's a really great idea, really novel, maybe people will want it at the idea IP phase, but oftentimes people get more interested as you get further, right? As you show a prototype, proof of concept, initial bench data, et cetera. So yeah, I think all those things are great options. You just have to always have a plan B, C, D, E, et cetera. Yeah. I, suppose, I guess also there are some people who just want to stay technical and they don't really want to get into the commercial um, scaling out. Um, I, I sit on, the, on um, as an advisor in a, VC, a venture builder firm, and I think they'll go and find those people who don't want to build the companies themselves but just want access to capital and, and people to make that happen. Yeah, that's a great model. And, and oftentimes the right team to do the technical development and sort of first clinical use is very different than the team that, you know, needs to figure out manufacturing scale and sales. It's, it's rarely the same people. So James, let me ask you one more question, then we're going to move on to Renee. You know, you told me um, previously that, when it comes to partnering with a big company to develop that product versus starting your own company, you didn't really have an option. There were no companies that were interested until you had a good prototype. So you went the startup direction. If there had been, you know, if you're doing this again, similar situation, and there were larger companies available, interested to help with that development, would you partner with a big company earlier or would you still go in the direction of uh, creating your own startup and getting funding? You know, as with everything, there's nuance and it depends. As a general rule, I would say riskier products, meaning super innovative, but potentially a PMA pathway that's going to require a lot of resources and a long arc to get to market. I like the idea of having a well-resourced large company 
that this is within their strategic focus and they're committed. I think that can be super helpful. But yeah, like I said, they're not always there. And this one, it wasn't a prototype. We had to go to market and not only sell to one place, but we had to show that we could maintain our margin and scale and become, you know, get reorders. I mean, it was a, it was a big barrier. Uh, and we tried each step along the way. And we, we did have one acquisition offer after our first commercial sale, but it was really, you know, kind of a low offer. And then we had to kind of go on and had plan B and do all the rest of this stuff. So I think there are certainly times to partner with big companies. I think it's really that high cost of innovation, long arc to a really premium product is the best opportunity. But, but there's also venture firms that'll bet on that as well. So you know, it depends on each case. Yeah, it's a great, great principle to pull out. Folks, we have reached the end of this episode, but certainly not the end of the conversation. If you've enjoyed this little foray into the world of innovation and entrepreneurship, please tune into the next episode for the second half of this discussion. 